now to your regularly scheduled program. Hey everybody, this is Josh Martin. And I'm Marty Hyde. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to the Tattoos and Jesus podcast. I am very happy to be here. Here at TNJ, we seek to blend the righteous with the ridiculous. Please explain. We discuss coffee, counseling, Christianity, and whatever else crosses our mind. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, let's go. Welcome back to a special... Oh yeah, I gotta keep my mouth on the mic. Special. Special episode. Special. Special episode. Special. Because we special. are currently special. Special. doing an intro. This intro. is going to last That's a couple right. seconds. Well, I, leading into our interview. And again, we've kind of pushed on this a little bit. Oh, we announced it last week that we were going to do an interview. Yeah. Did they we know. say who? Did we say David? Yeah. David. So this is it. This is the interview. Um, this is It's so cool. Um, David Artman, author of Grace Saves All. You may have already looked it up because I think we even shared all of that last week. And uh, one of the leading, I guess, brains behind Christian universalism, a Christian look at how God's grace ultimately redeems all creation through a biblical perspective. Uh, Josh, read us his bio. What's it say? So David Artman, A-R-T-M-A-N, is an ordained minister in the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. He holds a Master's of Divinity and a Doctor of Ministry degree from Brit Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas. His Grace Saves All book um, has, I think I mentioned this last week, has a forward and afterward on like from two different authors. Yep. Both authors, including him, are also big in Christian universalism. I've yes. read both of their, I've read one of their books and I started one of those David books. David Bentley Hart. No, so it was no. Brad Jersey. Yes, 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 yes. Who did um, Her Gates Will Never Shut, talking That's about right. the Revelation passage. And then um, Inescapable Love of God, Thomas Talbot. We've talked about yes. him. Yes. He did the after. Which, and, but he interviewed on the podcast, he David interviewed Billy Hart. Both of them. And so yeah. those three people, and, and, and Brian Zan probably, and Brian Zan are the four cornerstones of Christian universalism in the world today. Would you say that? Uh, as far as advocating for it, yeah. I would yeah, say yeah, yeah. Like, they're yeah. the biggest names kind of advocating for it, and then that he's either connected with through the book or his podcast, all four of those people. Yeah, or have have. And so I put him through. kind of right there. And so this is what, and I know we're not going to talk about it. We want to get straight to it, because this is a long interview, but if you're listening, I'm telling you it's worth the listen. It's worth he really provides... What yes. Marty and myself were talking about, our audience would want to hear. Yes. He had a lot more on it, but this is what we felt like y'all would enjoy the most from his conversation about the book that he wrote about Christian universalism. Yes. And then we talk about how he kind of found us on the right. interview as well. So this is what, two things, and we'll get to the interview. One is we asked him, how does the Bible make a defense for this? Because that's ultimately, if you're like me and coming from a kind of an evangelical tradition, my question is always, what? how does the Bible speak to this? Um, you know, not just how does my opinion speak to it, how does philosophy speak to it, how does the Bible do it? And so pretty much the entire interview is him saying, this is how I think the Bible makes an argument. Um, that grace ultimately, through Jesus, not pluralism, but through Jesus, his grace will ultimately redeem us and accounting for judgment hell all of the things that scripture says right not really trying to throw anything out and um, this is the what impressed me the most is just his his attitude and i hope this this shines through to podcast listeners is he is he's a humble guy right he's smart 
he knows his stuff, mm-hmm. but he kind of holds it in an open hand. He's like, listen, this is what I believe scripture says. And he acknowledges some places that, like, yeah, this is kind of weak. And like, there's some good arguments against it. Or I can see where other people, he gives, you know, he gives his props to the other kind of views and how he thinks they're strong in some areas. I just appreciate the lack of like just dogmaticness about it. Mm-hmm. Right. He's a guy that you're like, you know what? I see Christ in you. I can see he has a genuine desire to know and live out Christ on this world. And at the same time, like, but I don't have it all figured out. Right. right? And like, he's a guy I'm like, I could hang out with that. Like, I really just appreciated who he was. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, he's top notch. So yeah. joy, enjoy the listen. That's right. Push through and really just, and because there's really not a moment, like we hop straight into this podcast. So there's really not a moment where he doesn't give some type of nugget, yeah, to kind of take home with. So that's right. And it's not it's not to convert anyone, right? Like I've come on here and say I'm not a Christian universalist. Josh is in that camp, mm-hmm. and I'm not there. However, he's very persuasive. The stuff he lays out, I find compelling. I find it thought provoking, mm-hmm. right? I'm not converting, not announcing a conversion here, but it's just a really enjoyable listen. So without further ado, David. Artman. David Artman. Here you go. All right, guys, we are we are in have a, a true privilege today in that, as you guys just heard from the intro, we are having an inter, an interview today with David Artman. He is the author of the book Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. And and you actually reached out to us. Yeah, ah, a couple months ago now, mm-hmm. and kind of struck up a conversation after kind of the episodes that we had done. Yeah, on on hell and and uh, and I know Josh was pumped because you kind of fall under his camp in this thing. That's right. And so I got I, somebody <laughs> with me now. That's right. He was like, <laughs> I finally found me a friend. Yeah, yeah. No, I was sitting at work at school, and I and I we get those. I, I, you might get these too, David. Where people will send you emails like hey let's boost your podcast or hey let's 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 run like data for you or let's let's send you clippets and things like that and i was Uh refreshing my email and it said david artman i was like did i sign up for something off his podcast or like and then i clicked (laughs) into it and it was a personal email to us and i was like oh my gosh hold on now so i called marty and he's like i think I think I don't think this is fake. I think this is. I think this might be a real yeah. email. Like I uh, think we may be, we may be getting onto something. Um, well, so what I, what I do sometimes, you know, I'll just get online and I'll just uh, type in some different words into search engines and see is anybody out there talking about this? And I I came across this conversations that you guys were having, and I was just really impressed that you were just like two guys grown up in church and. You're for different reasons, kind of rethinking things, and you're just being willing to put your conversation and your life out there, and for people to listen to while you guys are working working this out. And I, I just, I was impressed by that. Well, we appreciate that. A lot of people, I think the the conversations we had after the the podcast came out um, were based around. This is the first time we've ever heard it, and that was the res- most of the response that we got from people who listened <laughs> to our podcasts was. I didn't even know there was another view of hell, much less one that's saving everybody. And then it just creates so many questions and conversations and everybody's like, 
freaking out and like and but not really but um it w- it was amazing to me because you know when when Josh and I sat down to do these podcasts it's probably the biggest risk we've ever taken yeah in the in the, in the media world I think that's uh, what got me is you guys are really sticking your necks out uh, at least from your from your context what you were right. doing you felt like you were really sticking your neck out and so we kind of thought man this may be the end of the pod like our pastors are going to sit us down excommunicate us like what's going to happen when we discuss you know and, and if you haven't went back and listened to those podcasts and you're listening we discussed the three traditional views of hell eternal conscious yeah. torment annihilationism and then ultimate reconciliation and i have traditionally here recently fallen into the annihilation camp and then Josh has fallen into ultimate reconciliation, which is David, where you fall. Right. And we were like, man, Before, those are both- but I, but I was in the uh, conditional immortality or annihilationist camp mm. for a long time. Yeah. You know, so I understand those, I understand sure. those arguments and I'm sympathetic to them. Well, I your, appreciate your goal it. is to convert Marty by the end of this podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, the, so the compliment to me from the audience has been, we took this risk and they are without a doubt one of our our, our highest, the fastest streaming results that we've ever had was particularly Josh's episode. People found so fascinating. And so what I found is is we got some pushback. We did. However, the vast majority of people that were like, that was so fascinating. I want to listen to it again because like Josh just said, we've never been there before. Like we mm-hmm. didn't even realize this was there. And really that's our whole thing. Like you just said, you're sympathetic to it. That's the thing that has been overwhelming to me in walking through this with Josh is at a minimum, I have become sympathetic to all the arguments, although I do find credibility in some more than the others at this point. It was it was amazing to me that it wasn't as easy to conceptualize through doctrine as I was raised to believe it was. Fair enough. So so how did you we're we're gonna kind of dive into your book here in yeah. a second, but how did you land on like what was your personal and you can be a snapshot aspect of it? What was your personal journey into Christian universalism? Like what's for our audience our audience to get some I guess some background or um, kind of know where you're coming from and who's talking. What's what's kind of your world into that? Okay. Well, if I'm thinking about Christian universalism as a term, the way I think about that is imagine like two circles. One circle is universal salvation, and that's the idea that in the end, somehow we're all drawn together and reconciled to each other and to God, universal salvation. Then the other circle is Christianity. So if you imagine kind of a Venn diagram where those, if you put those circles where they intersect, Mm-hmm. That would be Christian universalism, because not all universalism is Christian, right? And not all Christians have a universalist understanding, right? Uh, so I think that how it developed for me was a couple different things. The first was thinking more about grace. I had started really focusing on spiritual growth, and because I was in a church or denomination, the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, uh, you, you'll see him in most towns like the name like first christian church or maybe broad street christian church disciples anyway the the idea of our denomination is that that people join on the basis of a, a basic confession of faith i believe jesus is the christ the son of god and accept him as my lord and savior something like that and then beyond that uh there's not any certain theological position that everybody's expected to take so everybody gets the freedom to form their own theological position and about the anything well, um, we try to affirm, I mean, we're affirming, we try to affirm the core tenets of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but like when it comes to like something like eschatology, how you work out, how you work that out, or, you know, there's certain questions, you know, this kind of the controversial, difficult questions that all Christians kind of deal with. The way we handle that, try to handle that in the church is to say that, uh, well, each person is allowed and expected to go on their own journey and ask questions and come to their own best understanding and hopefully be sympathetic to people who maybe have a little different point of view. Hopefully we can all be in church together and take communion and and still, you know, be Christian family together. That was kind of the basic idea. So I would encourage, you know, I was looking for things that everybody could agree on, and one of those things would be spiritual growth. So we all agree that we should be growing spiritually, right? I mean, spiritual growth is a good thing. Most people will say, you know, amen. Amen to that. So I really started focusing on, well, let's look at how important spiritual growth is in the in the New Testament. You can find uh, an awful lot of um, scripture about the importance of ongoing spiritual growth. Uh, we are actually supposed to be growing spiritually with the goal of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's a pretty high standard. <laughs> so I was I was really trying to say that you know this is really this is really our goal. This is where we're headed. And um, but I didn't want to make then spiritual growth into some kind of burden that I had attached to people. I wanted to also say, but we have to understand this is also about grace that we've been included in God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. And so I started basically trying to say, well, we all should be growing spiritually, but we all should be understanding that we've been um, we've been included in some kind of amazing grace that God has given us. So it's not like we're trying to earn our salvation here or make God love us. We're saved by grace, and then growth is just our grateful response to this. So, so I started talking like this, and the more I started talking talking this way, I started even saying things, you know, like we're saved by grace alone. I found myself using that language. So I was I was kind of making this into an argument about grace, that we're saved by grace, and then growth is our grateful response to it. Well, then that started pushing me to ask more questions. Well, if we are saved by grace, how are we saved by grace? Are we are we saved by grace alone? I started thinking about that. And um, I found myself just wanting to be able to affirm that I believe that salvation was by grace alone, which I felt like was a core teaching of the Protestant Reformation. And I also wanted to affirm that grace goes to all people. Um, and if you put that together, that grace actually saves and grace actually goes to all people, well, then that would lead to the conclusion that somehow grace is going to catch all of us in the end. Mm -hmm. So you might say it was, to me, this was kind of following this. I kept following this understanding of grace and it just kept growing and growing and becoming more and more profound. And so finally, it just sort of forced me to kind of rethink everything. Now that's very similar because when me and Marty were kind of diving into this, um, I think it was was it Thomas Thomas Talbot where we found um an article that he wrote. It's like a ten page article. It was the three um the three Christian views of Western theology on this topic or three views. Yeah, the three views of God in Western theology, and yes, basically. Yes. And it was and it, it pre presented kind of those same aspects. Yeah, was, I kind of I did a similar exercise in my yes. book, which was three views of grace that you could talk about and basically it's like theology. one of these can't be true right um but some of them have to be true right. so which ones are true and what does that mean okay i'm back you there yeah all right so 
yeah and so it's just like there's the different views of grace and it's like some of these have to be true some of these can't be true like which ones are true that you but think we claim all three and yeah they're very conflicting and they can't play well with each other right. in some respects <laughs> well you end up with a you end up with a logical conflict the way i did it is to say that some christians have affirmed uh very strongly that salvation is by grace alone that tends to be the calvinist kind of can mm-hmm. And then the Arminian camp has claimed that uh, grace goes to all, that God wants to save all and extends grace grace to all. Uh, but then there's also the idea that some will eventually be lost. Okay, so that creates all, all those three positions have all been strongly affirmed, but you can't affirm them all at the same time with creating without creating some kind of logical problem. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's what I tried to work through in the book. And just for our listeners, you know, what are some of those logical problems that tend to hang people up? Okay. Well, let's say if I'm a, uh, if I want to, let's say I could ask both of you guys this, this question, do you both believe that God gives grace to all? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So now that would be um, a typically an Arminian, right? Mm-hmm. That would be an Arminian position. Do you believe that in that grace alone saves? Yes. Maybe. <laughs> okay. That begins to be a problem because then you have to sort of give up the idea that grace alone saves, right? I mean, okay, let me ask the, the third question would be, do you believe that some will be lost eternally, some way separated from God forever? Yes. Nah. <laughs> okay. So what what's happening here is basically what's going on is this, I'm, I'm posing all of these questions and it's mm-hmm. forcing us to then to think about what our different understandings of right. of grace are. If I affirm that salvation is by grace alone and that grace goes to all, I have to give up the idea that some will not be saved. If I affirm the idea that some will not be saved and that salvation is by grace alone, then I have to give up the idea that grace goes to all. If I affirm the idea that some will not be saved and grace goes to all, then I have to I have to give up the idea that salvation is by grace alone. And so that was just a way I, 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 I tried to, as an exercise that I tried to use to so, show what the different um, ideas of, of grace there's, are. There's pitfalls along the way. Well, yeah, there's just, you know, any way that basically once you start trying to do a theology of grace, you're going to run into some kind of difficulty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's just, that's just part of the territory. That's just doing theology. And so in, in that sense, we're all in the same boat. We're all going to run into mm-hmm. into passages of Scripture which are going to be difficult for us no matter what understanding of grace we take. Mm-hmm. And So, so what, what would you say ahead. is the sticky passage from a Christian universal perspective? Well, you know, there's a lot of language in the, um, in the New Testament that has to do with destruction. Um, and I, uh, you know, it's very... Uh, uh, the language is is pretty clear that there's this uh, destruction about destruction. The wages of sin is death. There's there's a lot of language that's like that, and so I think that I can really understand why somebody would come to a mm-hmm. position that yeah the the end point of all this could be for some a kind of irreversible death, which I think makes more sense than the idea of a of an ongoing conscious torment, which lasts forever and ever and ever and and ever and ever that, but, but there are some passages that you can, 
that you can find, which might seem to point you in that right. direction. I mean, the famous one is Matthew twenty five forty six. Yeah, you know, which immediately eternal life or eternal death. Even though there's some debate, I mean, you could make a good rationale why that's or, not no, true. or eternal, or where it's usually translated eternal life or eternal punishment. That's correct. Yes, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's you're correct. Like that's kind of the cornerstone of the eternal conscious torment camp. Yeah, is that verse? But you know, this is actually, and, and we're not just trying to like, you know, heap praises on you, but Josh has passed a lot of, over the last couple of years, he's passed articles and books along to me and all of which I found and, and many of the people that you've had on your podcast and stuff right. in which I'm like, Oh, that's thought provoking, but not persuasive. And I, and I emailed Josh, I was about two chapters into grace saves all. And I said, this is the best argument to persuade me. Like of all the books that you've sent me, and it's like, I'm not going to say that I'm a Christian universalist, but if I ever became one, it would be <laughs> a no small feat because of the book Grace Saves All. Because I think the way you write speaks to probably my conservative evangelical upbringing in that you don't stray away from the passages you just mentioned. Right. You don't just say, you know, I view it this way, figure out the rest. Mm-hmm. You know, you you provide a good explanation. So one of the things that we were kind of hoping you could lay out is how do you approach a biblical argument for Christian universalism mm-hmm. um, that allows Scripture to speak that truth into us and us not try to read it into Scripture? Well, I, I thought about it kind of from the point of view of uh, Calvinism does a really good job, I think, of laying out its core beliefs and kind of five points. And so I thought, well, I'd like to do a similar exercise myself and see if I can put together in five points uh, a, a biblical picture of God that affirms that salvation is by grace alone and that grace goes to all, which gives us then a picture of a God whose loving and redemptive purposes then are triumphant um, throughout uh, all of creation and ultimately with all of humanity. So the first point that I made is uh, that God is a loving parent to all. And just some scripture um, that, um, that well, first of all, that is a loving parent, that God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8. Mm-hmm. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, you know, love is patient, love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So, okay, if that biblical definition of love is correct, and then God is love, that's kind of filling in that picture um, a little bit. And then in the from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, so that somehow bearing the image of being a child or being like the Father in heaven is being like somebody who loves their enemies. Um, and then I, I've, that passage from Acts 17 where Paul is speaking to a group of pagans, and uh, this is in Athens, and he, he says to them, God is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. So there is Paul, you know, saying to pagans, 
uh, we are, we know, we're all God's children. And then in Ephesians uh, 3, Paul says, um, uh, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Ephesians 4, 6, uh, Paul is speaking about one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And, you know, and Jesus also, when he was um, given the Sermon on the Mount, and he's speaking to his disciples in front of these crowds of people, you know, he's encouraging He's encouraging them to call God Father. Um, he uses that analogy, you know, repeatedly. So I just wanted to make the first point that I, I think that I can have make a biblical argument that God is a loving parent to all people. So that's that was just the first. That's my first point. How how does that strike you guys? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's. I don't. It's, it's harder. I guess it'd be harder for me to answer because I'm I'm fully on board. So yeah, uh, he co-signed week retweet well, over I'm, here. I'm, let me let me ask on board. one clarifying yeah. question. Yeah. Right. Sometimes I sit here and I'm like, okay, is this a biblical thought or is this an indoctrinated thought? But you know, the idea of we are all God's children. But then there's the scripture that talks about that we are all God's children when we enter into the faith. We are adopted into the body yeah. of Christ. And so how would you explain, like, are are we God's children just because we're human? Or is there, like, when do we become God's children for those things to apply? Because I think that's where they would create a an argument and say, no, 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 all those things true. Like, everything you just said is true right. to a, a saved person because you've now been adopted into the family as his child. Yeah. Good for you for pushing back a little bit there. <laughs> yeah, <I think laughs> yeah is, because there are... Because there are other there are other passages that one could uh, could uh, appeal to that would say no. As a matter of fact, all people are not God's children. Only people who are redeemed in Christ are God's are God's children. And so it would be incorrect then to say that um, God has a loving parental God has a loving parental relationship with all of His children, but not all people are His children. And one could uh, provide. Uh, scriptures to make that argument. Um, the way I think about it is it's kind of like we are all God's children, but all of all of us are not yet bearing the image and acting that way. So for instance, you know, like in the Sermon on the Mount. I have some uh, of those at home right now. <laughs> <laughs> it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, so love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. So suppose we made that the criteria, that the only people who are the children of God are the ones who love their uh, love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. Well, that would that would that would divide humanity up in a different kind of way. Um, so the, I guess the way I've come to look at it is we are all God's children, but we are not all yet uh, bearing the truly the the image and carrying on the the family mission. Um, I, I would I would think about um, election in the same way that there are in a way that we're all elect in Christ, but in another way there are some who are elect in the sense that they have received Christ and then they are sharing uh, sharing Him with others. So um, election isn't just about who get who ultimately receives salvation? It's election isn't like I like I like to think about it. election isn't a uh, a cul de sac 
for all those who are only going to be saved is supposed to be a conduit. Those who are elect are the ones who are supposed to be passing on to the world the good news about Jesus. So the children of God then are the ones who are bearing the image of God and who are like loving their enemies. If you want to, if you want to say, you know, receive Jesus and uh, as Lord and Savior and are passing that message on and living in that family. Um, so that would, that would be how I would, how I would answer it. And some people would find that answer not compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, so I understand that. So I guess what I would say is I think that I have a leg to stand on. I have some scripture that I can stand on right. when I make this point, but I can also understand why, uh, somebody might want to uh, say, well, I disagree. I disagree with that. Then then I think there's, it's also kind of a larger ethical question that you get into then is, well, what kind of God would God be if God in foreknowledge brings into existence image-bearing creations, but but knows in advance that he is not going to have a loving parental relationship with all of them? Well, that raises kind of an ethical question then. Mm-hmm. that you've got to answer. So I think that my answer has a scriptural background, and I think that it it produces an ethically good picture of God as well. So I, for those reasons, I, I like to go. I, I still feel like I want to hold on that one. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. I, I mean, because I think we we've I think we talked about it on our on our own podcast, but people tend to throw out logic ethics and reason when it comes to determining what truth is in a way where it's like they take everything at face value or they say this is what scripture means regardless if i'm conflicted by my god-given instincts or conscience or like yeah. it's it's and it's this and they don't there's a way to kind of separate and divide the two when really it should help inform you kind of land on what maybe a couple of these things that has different viewpoints or has different views of scripture or has, well, what is the children of God? And so God kind of gives us that, which is one of what I think is like part of being the image of God is reason, is logic, is conscience, is helping us guide to guide us to that kind of truth. But, you know, as you know, in especially around here and conservative fundamental aspects, we're kind of taught not to use that part of us in a way. Um, yeah, I, you know, when I think when Jesus appealed to the crowds, he said, you know, even even you know, even a bad father knows how to give good gifts to his children. How much more does your heavenly father, mm-hmm. who's, who's a good father? So he's kind of he's he is. I I see him saying, okay, in a way, you guys kind of already understand. You can kind of recognize what good is. You you can kind of even see when when a, a bad father is doing good things, giving a good gift. So you kind of already have a sense of this. Let's 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 build on let's build on that. That that reminds me of in the New Testament, where Paul goes to what is it, the Areopagus, and he appeals to their reasoning. He says, you know, yeah. you have a, a you have an idol here for every god, yes, yeah. the unknown god. Yeah, and he that's that like, Acts, That's the same Acts seventeen passages that I talked about yes. earlier. You know, he's talking, he's reasoning with them. Yeah, so you have reason. You have the appeal to sort of conscience or understanding, kind of an inner understanding of what love is. You have you have those kinds of things at play. You can see in the New Testament itself. So, your first point is that Jesus is a loving parent. 
yeah, that, the way I put it is that God is, a loving is that parent. God has a loving parental relationship with every person, and for some people, that's a really hard one to get. I mean, it's hard for them to really imagine that God really and truly loves them, um, you know, in a parental way. They think of, I think they think of God more, even though you call God Father, it's He's more like a stern kind of distant. It would be like if you had a father who was also like a a really stern judge, like he was the, yeah, he's my dad, but he's also the judge at the high court. And, you know, I don't, he's uh, pretty stern. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that idea of the, the sort of the loving, nurturing that, that God really loves me kind of like. Uh, if if you've been fortunate enough to have a good parent who's loved you, or if you've been a parent and you've loved a child, that that that's the same kind of love that we're talking about. Uh, it's the same kind of love that we're talking about here. So then what's number two? Okay. My second point is that God sincerely wants to save all. And I can see, I think if I go all the way back to Genesis, that God says to Abraham, Genesis 12, 3, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So that the idea of the chosen people was not, oh, I'm only going to bless these people. The idea of the chosen people was that they would be a blessing to all the peoples um, of the earth. And then I really love that passage in John 12, 32, where Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, and he's talking about his crucifixion there, uh, says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Um, and then in that 15th chapter of Luke, you know, it's the parable of the lost lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. But Luke 15, 4 to 7 says, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So it's not just that he goes out and looks and looks and looks and looks. He searches until he finds that one lost one. And then First Timothy 2, 3 through 4, talks about, uh, describes God, our Savior, uh, desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second uh, Peter uh, three nine says the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, when I put those kinds of passages of Scripture together, I just ask a basic question: Does God sincerely desire the salvation of each individual child? I think of it who He has a loving relationship with, and I say I think I think I can see some scriptural evidence that that this is the case. And usually Arminians uh, have no problem affirming mm -hmm. that one. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's the Calvinists. Yeah. We don't have a Cal we don't have unfortunately we don't have a good Calvinist friend here. To, <laughs> uh, but you know the, the Calvinists would have problems with that one because they would say, well no, uh, no, God never um uh, uh didn't, didn't sincerely uh, didn't sincerely want that. But so that that's probably one of my least controversial points is that would God sincerely wants to save all most people? If you ask them that when they would say, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's probably the case. Yeah, that's not you don't have to do many, many jumps through hoops to get there. Yeah. OK. Um, well, shall I go on to the third point? 
Yeah, let's go. Okay, let's do it. All right. My my third point is that God in Christ covers the sin of all, and you know the idea of of the that of sacrifice and atonement and the covering of sin. That's just a big. That's a that's a big theme that runs all the way through the Bible. And then it raises the question then, okay, well, how far does that covering or atonement go? Who is it who is it for? And what I'm going to say is that God in Christ has provided a covering for all of uh humanity's sin. And so uh Romans five eighteen says, uh, therefore just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. And I think that if you look at the fifth chapter of Romans, that a really good argument can be made that Paul is contrasting. There's a there's a, somehow in Adam, humanity is covered in sin and death. But then in Christ, humanity is covered in righteousness and life. And then he goes on to make the point that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So a lot of people who want to argue for a universal kind of salvation or universal atonement will appeal to the fifth chapter of Romans uh, for that reason. And then even later on, Romans 11.32 is kind of the culmination of, I think, Paul's argument in Romans. And he says, uh, so God has consigned all to disobedience, then he may have mercy upon all. So there's this, I think, that in Christ, God has provided a sufficient covering for all of uh, humanity sin. Uh, Colossians three three says, uh, "For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God." First um, John two two. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's a powerful one. First Timothy two five through six. There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus, man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So there's this kind of this theme that that somehow all of humanity is, is included in the death of Christ. We're all included, that that we're all taken in, and that there's this covering of life and forgiveness and mercy that I think I can see has been laid over all of uh, humanity. And so those are the verses then that I appeal to, um, that I appeal to for that. One, um, one of those passages, when me and Marty kind of both separately read through, listened through your book, we kind of typed our own notes up and thoughts up and then kind of shared them with each other. And one thing that we both had on our, on our papers were, um, uh, first Peter, the first Peter three, 19 through 20 in the four, the four, six, where you mentioned how Jesus's salvation to others breaks through even death when he goes in and he preaches to the, to the spirits and the prisons and he goes down to the, um, to what people think is Hades and he preaches to the yeah. spirits there and he's, and it, and it kind of struck me. I don't guess I've really, I kind of, it kind of struck both of us a little bit that you didn't really notice that. Like he kind of just went under the radar that, Jesus just went and preached to souls that had already died. Like the pe people are already dead. And then he went and offered salvation to these people. And it's like, so salvation reaches beyond death is kind of a foreign concept to most in a way. And that, that, that was one of the passages that kind of when reading through, as you talk about it, you know, when, when salvation goes to all in my mind, it goes there. You all who, who, who have even died, 
all and all who have never even heard of Christ, all of so all these complex questions people ask, like, okay, well, what if nobody ever hears? What if the unreached people die and they never hear of Christ's name? Yeah, this is one of those points where it's like, okay, well, well, Christ reaches those even after their earthly death, like there's still salvation possible. Yeah, in early in early Christianity, they had this idea that um, that the good news was that that Jesus had secured the victory over sin, death, and evil on behalf of humanity. And so there's an early kind of understanding of atonement called Christus Victor, you know, the idea that, that Christ is the victor and he has and he has robbed Satan's household. He has delivered he has delivered us, you know, children that have been bound in sin and death and evil and he's he's rescued us. And so I think that was where some of them got the idea that in the early church that perhaps this rescue and victory would be complete and total. Um and they appealed, they certainly saw those passages in First Peter and thought, okay, we're seeing, you know, that 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 Christ descends even to the dead uh to rescue them. And there there are ancient Christian paintings of of Christ pulling people you know, out of Hades and lead, leading them, you know, and, and ultimately that out. thought is kind of what also influenced the Catholics in purgatory and some of, and now they got carried away with some of their indulgences and stuff. But it was the idea yeah. that they thought that it, the ability for Christ to operate was even beyond the grave and even into what the, you know, they called purgatory. Yeah. I did a, uh, I did a podcast with an Eastern Catholic scholar. There's an Eastern Catholic church. And um, he said that in his studies, what was interesting to him was that if you study the very earliest Christians, you can see that they were praying for the dead, that before there was any, any even kind of theology about it, that there was something about that the reach of Christ, that, that those who were dead were not beyond the reach of Christ. And so praying for the dead was an early Christian, um, I guess, instinct, right? But that then uh, became kind of associated with Catholicism or those types of things. And then Protestant, Protestant Christianity had a reaction against that. Of course, mm -hmm. we don't, we don't pray for, we don't, we don't pray for people who have, who have died. Um, so I, but it is interesting that it is part of the Christian, if you, to me, I try, what I try to think of is not, not so much am I Protestant or am I Catholic or whatever, I more or less try to think of myself as, okay, I am a part of something, and as a Christian, I have a, you know, 2,000 years of history, and I think fellowship with those who have gone before me, mm -hmm. and that I can feel a connection, that I can feel a sense of connection with these people, and uh, they're not just figures in church history, these early church figures, uh, they're my brothers and sisters, and I can feel a sense of connection with them. And I might not agree with everything they thought about things, but I can certainly uh, be inspired by some of those thoughts that they had and some of the things that the ways that they put their faith together. And so I guess what I tell people is I think what I'm trying to do is I'm, I'm trying to look at Scripture. I'm trying to use reason. Um, we talked about that. I'm trying to use my moral what I feel like is my moral grounding, my sense of what love is. But I'm also um, 
looking back into the history of Christianity and and seeing, you know, who who seemed who was saying things or what what were they thinking, what were they believing, and I feel like it's okay for me to, oh, that was I, I love what you know what Gregory of Nyssa had to say, um, I, you know I love uh, what maybe um, women of Alexandria or Saint Isaac had to say, Th- that that's given me a lot of permission I think in in my thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And quickly before we move on to point four and five, the the first verse you referenced in, for the atonement, you're talking about in, in Romans chapter five, the argument there, and it says, you know, through one man sin entered the world, and then through one man salvation to all right. people. Translation Marty. Um, the the thought that I had in this process that's kind of given me some mental constipation along the way was, and it's kind of a I guess a philosophical thought is, why is it why is it okay that all of humanity, right? Like all of humanity can be sinful because of one mortal man's actions, but not all of humanity can be redeemed by one eternal man's actions. Yeah, it seems that it seems that Adam is much more efficient as a human being yes. at condemning humanity than Jesus is as the divine son of God at redeeming humanity. So it seems <laughs> that right. Adam Adam, ironically, then, who doesn't seem to know what he's doing, ends up having this more power uh, mm-hmm. has, in a way has he can he can mess things up that Christ can't fix. Yeah. And and he was and then it goes back to the whole. Well, he was made with the capacity to make this choice. Right. And, and he was clearly made with the capacity to make this choice. Right. Or he wouldn't have been able to make it. Or he wouldn't have been able to. So then right. you could go back to the whole. Then, then there was foreknowledge. God made him with the the foreknowledge that this was the path. Because if not, then you have to question, well, then is God all-powerful, all-knowing? You know? Yeah. There's this whole loophole. So it's like God made him with this capacity to not be perfect, and he wasn't. But then you have the person that wasn't capable of not being perfect in Jesus, but now he's limited. And and that's one that I'm like, it doesn't sell me one way or the other, but I do find it to be a very compelling thought. Yeah. Well, once you start thinking about what is the foreknowledge of God, if if you say, I th- and this is kind of getting to my next point, maybe we should just go there. Go, go for it. Okay. So the first, the fourth point is that God is sovereign overall. And this, this to me was one that was kind of a surprise because... I wasn't really used to thinking this way. Uh, this is one area where I find Calvinism pretty compelling. It mm-hmm. because Calvinism, I think, if I was going to say what what do I think the strongest contributions of Calvinism are, I think Calvinism really uh, wants to talk about the sovereignty of God in very strong ways, and I think Calvinism also wants to insist that salvation is by grace alone, and. Uh, I've ended up found finding both of those arguments being pretty persuasive, but let me just talk about God being sovereign overall. So just some, you know, the Old Testament, you, you find a lot of sovereignty passages. Second Chronicles 26, O Lord, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hands are power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord does, he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Proverbs 19, 21, the human mind may devise many plans, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. 
Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14.24, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will happen. Isaiah 46.10, and this is one that really got me thinking, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my purpose shall stand and I will fulfill my intention. So that got me thinking, you know, the idea of sovereignty isn't just that God knows what's going to happen, but God has something in mind. And whatever it is that's in mind, God knows what it is. And God is God is able to accomplish whatever it is that God wants to accomplish. Uh, Matthew nineteen twenty six. But Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but for God, all things are possible. And in that passage, you've got the, that's the rich young ruler passage. And, you know, Jesus sends him away and his disciples are upset or their concerns say, well, if he can't be saved, who can be saved? And the answer is, well, with, with, uh, for mortals, it's impossible, but for God, all things are possible. So you're, you're even in kind of a zone there where you're talking about salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Ephesians one eleven talks about, uh, having been predestined according to the plan of him, he works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So what, what I'm trying to say there is, I think, by saying that God is sovereign overall, I'm trying to say that I think that whatever God's ultimate intentions and purposes are for humanity in creation will not be ultimately frustrated. So it's not like God is going to say, well, here's what I want to have happen, but then something's going to happen and God's going to say, darn it, I didn't didn't know I didn't know that Bob was going to come along. Dang it, Bill. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Eddie, I didn't I didn't plan for Eddie. Boy. Yeah. My uh, cousin Eddie will get you every time. Yeah. <laughs> but th- so there was this, so I started thinking, okay, well, whatever whatever it was that God intended from the beginning, then will ultimately come to pass necessarily because God is sovereign. So so I, I started to think that m- that my ultimate destiny is really, in a way, decided at the beginning of creation. God, um, you know, I sort of make a you know, a joke. It's not like, you know, it's going to be, things are going to be winding up at the end of creation and, uh, and, uh, God's going to say, Oh, look, Bob made it. I didn't know if Bob was going to make it. Or not. Yeah. Good to see you, Bob. Yeah. No, like, or, or like, suppose, you know, we're talking about a universal restoration and let's suppose that, uh, that everybody is saved except for one person. The last person comes across the line, everybody cheers and God goes, Phew. I don't know if that was going to happen or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, what do you mean? You didn't know that was yeah. going to happen. Didn't Sweat you know? Out. Yeah. And there's also, I didn't, there's the passage where Jesus talks about, you know, the person, you know, if you're going to build a tower, you want to make sure you can finish it because you don't want to start to build a tower and then run out of supplies and be a laughingstock. Or he uses the other example, you know, if you're a king and you're going into battle, you want to make sure you have enough people that you can, you know, that you're going to be able to do what you want to do. Um, and when so the idea that God would enter into creation not knowing what God wants to do, or if God has mm-hmm. the resources and the ability to pull off the creation, I know some people like to talk about something called that's called like open theism, the idea that God enters into creation not knowing, you know, what's going to happen, which kind of strikes me as it sort of like makes God into uh, 
Dr. Frankenstein a little bit. Yeah. You know, God is like calling, God is, okay, I'm putting all of this stuff together and I'm going to call it to life. I'm going to bring it into existence and let's just see what happens. And uh, I'll see, you know, what I can make out of this. And now that God, is something I can relate to as a parent. I do feel like that most days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's one idea that God is, it's like, okay, I'm making a creation. And then, oh, oh, they messed up there. It's like, oh, darn it. They messed up there too. And yeah. Okay. Okay. So here's what we'll do. We'll do this. Uh-oh, look at that. Oh, now this has happened. Now what am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll do this. So the idea that God is always, you know, seeing it, what, you know, if, if God is going to, how many of us God is going to be able to save? Yeah, where that, that to me, that I guess ethically, it doesn't. You know, it's like it, God shouldn't. You know, I mean, before you're going to bring, uh, you know, rational sentient beings into existence, shouldn't you know if you're going to be able to do well with them or not? If you're going to make a creation, shouldn't you know? Shouldn't you be confident that you're going to be pull, able to pull it off in a good mm-hmm. way? And if you know, and this kind of gets into sovereignty questions for me too, gets into the, let's, let's suppose that, well, you know, that Bill ends up not being saved. Well, if you, if you take it from a Calvinist point of view, God never elected for Bill to be saved. So that's why Bob, that's why Bill's never saved because he was trapped in sin. There was no way he was ever going to get out of it. And so he ended up being annihilated or being tormented forever. And God knew that that was going to be Bill's destiny from the beginning of creation. Okay. For me, that causes I don't know. That causes a, a little problem in my heart. Like that doesn't yeah. sound good. That doesn't. That doesn't feel like goodness to me. And then the Armenian, the Armenian thing, uh, it makes it a little bit better, but still doesn't solve the problem for me because what it says is that okay, God makes the world and puts Bill in it, and God gives Bill some ability. Usually, the way the Armenian thing works is that God gives something called provenient grace, which then overcomes Bill's depravity to lift him up to the point where he can make. He can make a choice. So now Bill is is equally disposed towards going towards the good or going towards the evil. It's all up to Bill now. Uh, but let's say Bill makes the wrong choice and he goes towards the evil. Well, that's not going to be a surprise to God. So you still end up with the same problem. Yeah. God still made a creation in which mm-hmm. God knew he was going to give Bill this free will. But, but at the point where Bill needs the most help, God's going to say, sorry, Bill. And... Mm-hmm. You're going off into hell, and it's your fault uh, because this, you made you made the bad choice. That is one of my biggest sources of like holy heartburn is what you just said, and that is God. You know, if you if you go through Genesis, and you get to the the whole narrative on Noah, the ark flooding the earth. Basically, let's reset. You know, he you know he has this conversation about how you know basically I will never flood the earth again. I'm going to recalibrate my perspective of humanity. You know, I recognize that you were sinful upon birth, like you weren't capable of this. And so I get to that. And I think God recognizes our limitations. He recognizes what we are capable of and not capable of. And he is willing to adjust his view and interactions with us in light of acknowledging who we are, except when it comes to the biggest, most fundamental, eternal, everlasting question that one he's not going to budge on. No, he's not not letting you up. Though, on. though everything else doesn't really matter yeah. Yeah. in light of eternity. There's a funny, except there's the one a, in light of eternity. He's like, eh, we're going to stick you to that one. Yeah, yeah. Roger Olson is a very well known Armenian uh, theologian, and one of his uh, 
blog posts, he says, you know, all the all theological perspectives have some issues. And he said, um, for instance, the one in the Armenian is um, the problem of uncaused effect or kind of there's a mystery. There's the mystery of where the decision comes from. So uh, let's go back to Bill and let's let's do the the Armenian thing. OK, so Bill is given uh, provenient grace to overcome his total depravity. And he's and he's raised up. He's raised up to where now it's truly in his hands. He's equally predisposed one way or the other. So Bill is equally predisposed uh, one way to go, you know, either direction. And God has done all all that God is going to do is raise him up to that point and then say, I'm not doing anymore. So God is not going to put his finger on this on the scale and, and predispose him towards salvation. He's he's done his is he's done his part. Well, Bill is equally predisposed either way. So then you have the question, where does the decision come from? If Bill is equally predisposed and God is not is not going to do anything to to push him one way or the other, then you sort of end up with this uh, conundrum is well so is is Bill's eternal destiny kind of like a coin toss? How, where yeah, does it come from? Co- he, cosmic this, paper rock scissors. Yeah, yeah, rock paper scissors. So that's when I kind of get back into the idea and I I work on this later in the book, but the idea that if you are truly a child that there is something in you that's that wants to come home. Children, you know, they even and this is this is really heartrending, but even children that have been pretty badly abused mm-hmm. by their parents still want to come to their parents. I mean, we are kind of I think that I think that one of the things that I experience as a human being is a longing for my 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 truest creator, my ultimate parent, God. I I'm I want to I want I want that moment. I, I want to, I, I'm trying to come home. So um, I just think that when I when I started thinking about sovereignty things, it's that that God has put it within us. That, that I think of that as the Imago Dei, the, the, that we are His children, and that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, our very deepest level that that doesn't go away. I'm not just a blank slate. I'm a child who longs to come home, and if I'm if I'm not longing to come home, it's because I'm in the grip of sin, delusion, despair. I've convinced myself that God doesn't love me. There's nothing that can. I, I'm a lost cause, or. Uh, I can I can get so caught up in my lies and delusions that I I don't even think I want to come home. But I, I'm believing that God, being sovereign, anticipates people being falling into situations like that and being able to ultimately deliver them because God is sovereign. So I'm kind yeah. of rambling a little bit, but that no, you know that's... sovereignty sovereignty questions I think end up ended up for me. I hadn't really thought a lot about sovereignty questions theologically until I was about 50. And then all of a sudden, I just start thinking about them all the time. I started just asking myself, what is it that God wanted to do? What's God's ultimate purposes in creation? And if God is sovereign, what would prevent God from ultimately achieving those purposes? So that's the whole sovereignty part of it. That's that's what you just described was pretty much my so far spiritual journey in a nutshell, because I was I guess I'll kind of out myself. I was a five point Calvinist for most okay. of my life. And then not until recently, I don't know, maybe since I've met Marty, he undid me. But um, now I, I just kind of the sovereignty is what brought me in and the sovereignty is also what took me out of it. And it was yeah. weird because, the you know, God's sovereignty is so 
as for for in a world of anxiety god's sovereignty is really a huge answer because you don't have to worry because it's all in control and control well to me it's interesting because i think that is what drives a lot of people to calvinism is the attraction of i you know what i don't know i'm up one day i'm down the next i'm up one day and i'm down the next i can't i can't i can't do this anymore i'm ready to i'm ready to believe that god is sovereign and that god has me and i think that's the attraction to calvinism and once one starts thinking about sovereignty questions and you start looking at, well, I don't know what I think about eternal conscious torment. I'm not sure what I think about annihilationism. What about universal restoration? All of a sudden, once you connect the sovereignty stuff with the idea of universal restoration, yeah. then somebody who's been thinking about Calvinism already sort of has a lot of those theological categories. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, okay, I can see how that could fit together. Yeah. That's exactly what I told. I might have told Marty. I've told a few people. I'm like, universal Christian universalism was the missing piece that connected everything because it was, I, I was, I was really drawn by God's sovereignty and Calvinism and all that. And I was like, once you think about the outcome, it's like, well, people, people make it, people don't, but they don't have a choice. And you think about where they go, where they don't. I'm like, there's no way. And so like your, your biggest point is grace, you know, in the book. And for me to, when I, I guess became a universe, Christian universalist um, coming out of a world of, Calvinism justice was kind of the thing that really stuck out to me because it's like it's not just if God chooses and picks and chooses and torments and that's not that's not just because people don't have an opportunity number one and so when I switched to kind of an Arminian free will thinking where you you know you talk about they're bobbing on the water they got their they can choose one way or another well you know me and Marty can say we have we make a living off of people not making great decisions. Like, right. I mean, we, we are therapists who see people all the time right? completely screwed up from um, things that might not even be out, the, out of their control. Right. And, and I, that's and I really liked your episode that you're talking about. You know, we're predisposed towards lots of things. Right. And uh, there's, I think there's, uh, I think people are starting to take more seriously the idea that maybe there's even inherited trauma. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, if you grow up in a family that is got all of those, all that stuff going on. Yeah, I know that when uh, I worked in a homeless shelter for a while, when I lived in Chicago, and um, there was something in the homeless shelter called fear of success. So, if you've grown up in an environment where you've failed and everybody else around you has failed, and all you know is that you're a failure, what are you good at? Like, I'm good at failing. Failing, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, like. And so uh, we would have, we had this 10, this 10 step program and you could work your way through it. And once you work your way through the 10 steps, you got an apartment and six months of rent, weren't homeless anymore. So people would get to uh, step number nine and you know what would happen a lot of times? Self-sabotage. Yes. And why? Because they were afraid of succeeding because Mm -hmm. they'd never succeeded at anything. And the idea that they could be successful created so much inner anxiety. This is, I'm just going to go ahead and fail. Yeah. And the moment you realize success is an option from you, all the BS you sold yourself all along no longer holds water. And now all of a sudden you're like, oh, then I don't have an excuse not to change in these other areas along yeah. the way. Well, yeah. okay. And then so one of the things I started saying to people when I was, as a matter of fact, um, we – I really like a lot of the uh, spirituality that comes out of recovery. I like the big book. Mm-hmm. I like uh, I like a lot of the spirituality that comes out of, of that program. And uh, and 
I started saying to people that I know, I mean, people have lots of different ideas about God, but my idea about God is that God's grace towards you, God's power to save you is greater than your ability to screw this thing up. So what if you just allowed yourself to believe that God was ultimately going to be victorious with you and that whatever your demons were, that God was finally going to work with you to defeat those? And what if you believe that God was sovereign and competent enough to do that? Well, if you actually believe that, then you wouldn't have to worry. You could you could say, okay, I'm, I'm trusting and believing that it, and well, in the recovery, you could say the God of my understanding is one who will never leave me, never forsake me, and will and will help me defeat my demons. And because I can believe that God will ultimately be successful with me, then I can start to believe that I can work with God right now, and and I can go ahead and start kind of living in that victory that I believe is ultimately there for me. And that turns out to be a powerful moment for people. Yeah, yeah. agreed. We'll bring it home. What's number five? Yeah, do you, well, do got, you have an acronym like yeah. in Calvinism? It's Tulip. Yeah. What's, have you come? You know, no, it didn't. It. Uh, you know, I thought about. <laughs> I thought David, about that. And is there any way would, to make it your name? That would be awesome. <laughs> I thought about it, and uh, you know, I didn't want to make it too derivative. There's a way in which, if you look at Tulip, I'm kind of, you know, because Tulip starts out with uh, total depravity, and I'm yeah. kind of instead of starting out with the total depravity of human beings, I'm starting out with the total goodness of God. If you yeah. want to think about it that way, so it's a little different starting point. And then uh, unconditional election is the second is the second point, and and then that's and so and then I have that's where I'm talking about election that God does sincerely want to save all people. Mm-hmm. The my third point has to do with God covering the sin of all. Well, in in tulip, that's that would be limited atonement. So that third spot is kind of an atonement part. Uh, irresistible grace is the fourth part of the tulip, and uh, so that's kind of a sovereignty issue there. Yeah. So that's where I stuck the conversation about sovereignty. And then at the end of tulip is the perseverance of the saints, which means that if you are truly elect, you will persevere to eternal the end. security. Yeah. Once saved, always saved. Yeah. Well, then what I put there, instead of thinking about the perseverance of the saints, I started thinking about the perseverance of God. So the, my fourth point is that God will be all in all. The idea is that God perseveres until God finally achieves God's ultimate purposes in creation, which is finally to be all in all. And uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty eight ends up being a really crucial passage here. It talks about uh, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. And if you go back in the history of Christianity, probably the most famous person in early Christianity was the greatest scholar to put together the first kind of systematic theology in a way was the origin of Alexandria. And his theology, that this this. First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight was really important to him because the way he reasoned was, well, if God is ultimately going to be all in all, how is that, you know, how is that going to happen? So for him, his instead of starting with theology, you, you know, usually theology start with the, you know, the beginning in the beginning, but he kind of his theology was really oriented towards his understanding that God would ultimately be all in all. So so First Corinthians fifteen twenty eight. Romans 11.32, we talked about that earlier, but that says, uh, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience that he may be merciful to all. So 
just saying, okay, I think God's ultimate purpose is to be all in all and therefore to be merciful to all. Ephesians 1, 9 to 10, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Um, and then you kind of get this theme throughout the Bible that every knee will bend and every tongue will confess. So in Psalm 22, uh, 28 to 30, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord. and He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Isaiah forty-five twenty-three. by myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. And then that gets picked up in the New Testament. Romans fourteen eleven. 11. Uh, Paul says, uh, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That word for confession there is eximola gestae, which implies a joyful uh, kind of confession. Colossians 1, 16 through 20, uh, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. First uh, John 3, 8, Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. If you think, okay, well, the job of the devil is to try to separate humanity from God. Uh, so, you know, so Jesus defeats the devil. Acts 3.21 says, uh, Heaven must receive him until the time comes from God to restore everything, as he promised long ago uh, through his holy prophets and the restoration of all things. That Greek word there is apocatastasis, and that's, that is the name that sometimes gets attached to this idea of universal restoration. Um, I, think I'll, I think I'll stop there. You know, so <laughs> yeah. basically, you know, it's not that these verses prove prove it, but it's just interesting that once you put, once you allow yourself to think, okay, let me let me think about this. Can I find any places in the New Testament where it seems that God's ultimate purpose is to finally be all in all, or to have all things reconciled or restored? And once you allow yourself to put those glasses on, you can start to see them, mm -hmm. and you start. And it's funny because you'll say, "Huh, I never really saw those before. I saw them before, but I just kind of, you know." I just kind of wrote them off because I know in the back of my mind, well, that's not going to happen. Uh, but if you allow yourself to think, no, this could really happen. This could be uh, what the ultimate uh, purpose of God is. So I just say that those are five points that I think I can make a biblical argument for. It's not that mm -hmm. biblical arguments can't be made against them, but I think I can say I can. I have a leg to stand on. And then I also think that I have a uh, moral and moral and sort of logical case to make that if God is in fact uh, um, love and if God is light in whom there's no darkness at all, then at the beginning of creation, that love and light, um, it, it just seems to me that that it would 
ultimately, whatever God is doing, it would be so that that love and light would finally permeate everything. And that Mm -hmm. if God creates knowing that he's going to be casting some number of people into some type of misery or ruin, that they are never going to know his love, they're never going to have really a reconciled relationship with him. And he does this anyway, knowing full well in advance, either in the Calvinistic scheme, that he has decided uh, that he's not electing and they never have any chance at all, or even in the Arminian scheme, he's going to give them a chance, but he's he's he knows they're he knows they're not going to he knows they're going to make a bad decision. And mm-hmm. so, uh, once you do that, then okay, so then I've got a problem with grace because I want to affirm that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. If I subtract anything, one iota from either of that grace saves alone or that grace goes to all, then I get a problem with my doctrine of grace. Then I get a problem with my doctrine of God because I think I've introduced some evil into that picture. And so I've been thinking about this this way for the last 10 years now. And so for me, it's at this point, it just seems kind of obvious to me that the goodness of God um, must have been in the uh, perfect goodness of God, must have been at the beginning of creation and, and must finally uh, be be uh, completely uh, triumphant in some way that we can all see it and understand it together, that the, that in the end, then grace saves all. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I, I think that's just, that that's a, that is a solution to me that pulls together scripture, uh, tradition, uh, my moral intuition, my logic in it. And it, it's, to me, it's a, it's a way that I can be Christian and just, feel really good about my Christian faith and enjoy it and really enjoy sharing it with others. A lot of times, you know, when I tell people about my viewpoints, um, you know, most of the response that I get is, oh, I I have never heard that view of Christianity expressed before. That's interesting. Can you tell me some more about that, how you came to those conclusions? So I'll stop there. And then you hand them your book and walk off. (laughs) Well, I mean, what I did with the book was, you know, my book is not very long, and yeah. I, that's intentional. I didn't want it to be long. And I just wanted to let me make an initial case. And if you think that it's worth pursuing it, at the end of the book, I give a lot of, you know, recommended reading if you want to go further. And then I, in the podcast, what I did in the first 30 episodes was just try to kind of walk through the book for free with people and then just do some interviews with scholars and other folks that are thinking this way. And uh, so that if it's something that you want to investigate, if if somebody gets upset with me, I guess I would say, you know, would you rather your son or daughter walk away from Jesus completely? Would you rather them deny the Christian faith altogether? Or would you rather them be Christians along with Gregory of Nyssa, who was voted the seventh general council of the church, father of the fathers? Would you, you know, wouldn't you rather there's some outstanding figures in the history of the Christian faith that have thought this way? Wouldn't you rather your son or daughter be able to be a Christian in this way rather than not be able to be a Christian at all? So I don't think what I'm doing is I'm, I'm not attacking the Christian faith. What I'm trying to do is say, hey, there's some broader ways of thinking about this. And if it's important to you, because some people say, well, I can never, I can't be a Christian because I can never believe in a God that's going to send people to hell forever. I say, well, okay, I can understand that. Uh, but that's not, that's not a deal breaker. You can be a Christian and believe that God will ultimately save everybody. This is, don't let that keep you from being Christian. Yeah. Well, so 
I had a list of questions. Are you converted? We're, yeah. <laughs> we're not going to go through all of them because, I mean, we could sit here for three more hours if I was like, explain what an, you know, what an ion means. Right. Yeah. Explain A-on. what, what this all, so a couple questions. Yeah. These are, these are. Okay. So I'll try to, and I'll try to make these a little briefer. Okay. This is my itch that I'm asking you to scratch and hopefully okay. other people. <laughs> so one of the, one of the sticking points for me when it comes to, is not against your argument, mm-hmm. but for annihilationism is personally, I think that there is pretty clear evidence in scripture that we are not immortal beings from the get go. Like literally it says in Genesis that we were kicked out of the garden as really the first act of grace or a a major initial act of grace because it says lest you eat of this fruit and live eternally to live forever right and, not, and so to me it's like he he spared us from having to be entrapped in this sin eternally and so then i have to reconcile well then if we are through christ going to live in heaven eternally then when is our immortality imparted right and the best that i can kind of decipher i guess in my you know, ten, 10 cent theological understanding is salvation, right? When when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, our immortal self is reinstated. And, and you may say the same. I guess my question is after death, how do we, how is there a window of time for response before the mortality of our decisions leads to an ultimate destination and Anyway, you understand what I'm saying. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is the strongest argument for it's the term is conditional immortality, and it's kind of like the the wages of sin is death, and and then but the but the gift of the salvation then is eternal life. You know, so you're granted this um, eternal ongoing existence, and if if you're not granted it, well, then you just die. You just mm-hmm. You know, that's it. The wages of sin is death. And I think that that's a pretty compelling argument. And that's why I've believed that for a long time. And I know I think that I think that that's a much better um, than the whole idea of eternal conscious torment, because let's say if you go the annihilationist route and conditional, you you can say that God will finally be all in all because those who do not make it for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. They die. They're not in existence. They're they're not in existence anymore. So God really finally is all in all. There is there is in a sense there is a victory, um, and that all those who share in that victory are God is all in all in all those people. But if you if you do the argument of eternal conscious torment, then what you have is an eternal e- eternal like two camps eternally existing, and it would seem like the camp that is that is the ones that are redeemed. With God would be the small fall the 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 by far smaller camp that the much larger camp would be the people that are in eternal conscious torment uh, forever, which seems like a weird kind of resolution uh, to creation. And I guess then that um, uh, I mean, as far as your question about uh, you know when when do we become immortal immortal beings? You know, you can like. Paul, when Paul is speaking to the people in Athens, you know, he says, uh, you know, you're, we are all children. You're, even your own poets know this. We're all we're uh, God's offspring. The Greek word there is genia, that we are the that we are the 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 children of God, and that God 
it seems to me that it would be it would be strange that if God has children that they would not share in God's own uh God's own future. Mm-hmm. You know, this this kind of gets back to just my this the you might call it like the logic of love or whatever. If I'm a parent and I'm going to have children uh and I want to love them all and I want them all to know my love um but it I'm only going to grant immortality to some of them and the others of them I'm just going to well I'm going to let them pop out of existence and I always knew that that was going to be their destiny I always know that Bill and Susie and Eddie uh they weren't going to make it uh but I created them anyway and then then what happens to their to their brothers and sisters that did make it or well, you mean you did this I mean it cre- to me it just starts creating problems like okay yeah. so so dad the way you did this was you knew that bill and susie and eddie were never going to make it and you created them and you never lifted them into this eternal life that you've lifted us into but you knew that from the beginning but we loved them um i mean that just it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like a very good story to me it just mm-hmm. doesn't it just doesn't seem right so there's probably some this is one of these things where if you want to talk, you know, like uh, there's a lot of people that make the uh, argument that that it's funny that some of the, the folks that make the eternal conscious torment argument and the universalist argument have have a have an agreement in that if something is lost or destroyed doesn't necessarily mean it's completely out of existence. So there's this interesting Greek word, apolumai, which implies losses and destruction and even death. You can see it in Luke chapter 15. The lost coin, the lost son, the lost sheep are all in a state of apolumai. But when they're found, they are they are not destroyed. And when the um, the lost son is supposed to be in a state of destruction, apolumai, his father said he was not, he, my, my son was lost, he's now found, he was dead, he's now alive again. So... Um, to me, the God of the God who can do anything, the God for whom all things is possible, can um, raise can raise anybody up to immortality that God God wants to do. God can do anything God wants to do. So it still kind of gets back to this whole sovereignty question. To yeah. me. However, having said that, I also have a great deal of sympathy for people who look at the Bible and say, "Look, there's an awful lot of stuff here that looks like it talks about destruction mm-hmm. and annihilation." In an absolute and total end. So, I mean, I get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not that I'm saying that I don't. You're not. You're not a perceptive person because you don't see this. Because I, I even wrote a whole Doctor of Ministry paper arguing for the annihilation conditional immortality thing back in like 1996. So I'm not saying that when you're gonna, you know, you're my age, you'll overcome this. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that I understand those arguments. And yeah. it does seem to be that the thing that is, I mean, we're sort of presented with life and death. We've got we've got this choice to make. And there's an awful lot in the Bible that talks about this choice between life and death. And um, maybe it could be that there is a way that we can descend into a death that is unrecoverable. And I can see how people would get that from the, there are certain passages and places you can go. You definitely get that. Okay. I'll stop there. That's your main, that's your main yeah. one. That was the that's the big one that that I, I am wrestling with now. Yeah, and and I can I mean I can argue and answer back to myself. I'm not going to right now. That kind of helps me piece this together to yeah. go in either direction. But that's the one that when I stumbled, that was the one that shattered ECT for me. 
Yeah, it's interesting to was, yeah, that's like the overarching like when I say overarching overwhelming, the overwhelming evidence that at a minimum points to annihilation in every example, in every passage, in every scripture. It's like you said, once you can allow yourself to see through this lens, mm-hmm. some things really start to shift for you. And to me, when it talks about any of these passages that seem to relate to death, salvation, eternity, consequences for our actions, there at a minimum, at a minimum, there seems to be an annihilationist message there. Yeah. Far, far before there's ever an eternal message of torment. And so, and I get where the ECT people got that, right? There's some language that, that does that. And we, but, but like at a minimum, there's that. And then I started saying, like, hold on a second, this conditional mortality, I've never thought about that. Yeah. And then I start looking at it and, and it's universally accepted that, I mean, from conservative authors to non conservative, that, you know what? Um, mortality is not necessarily you know immortality is not necessarily present in people by default mm-hmm. and yeah. you know it takes a it takes an inner like we lose that we lost that in the garden and it takes it being imputed by a holy god and then the question is just okay well then who's it imputed upon you yeah know, how far does it extend well that's why i think that what's interesting about you guys is that you you the, your most fundamental agreement is that some way the eternal conscious torment thing doesn't really work. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't even cover that in our podcast. We just, <laughs> we just well, <laughs> we can't, we also have at, like, without actually going to people, we have like pleaded to say, listen, if you feel like you can articulate yourself yeah. and you're sure. on the ECT side of things, please come and persuade us. Please come and give your argument, not so that we can try to destroy you, but when when I've all of a sudden become convinced of a view, Josh has become convinced of you by default, right? Like you said earlier, there's a consequence there. Well, the consequence is I am no longer fair and unbiased to the previous view. And so I need someone who can come in and push against our arguments to try to refine us even further. Yeah, I, I just think that you guys kind of represent what's going to be happening with a lot of people who've grown up in an evangelicalism that featured eternal conscious torment fairly prominently that you guys, just because there's, there's just a world of information out there now and Mm -hmm. you can access it pretty easily and you're going to ask these questions. And so uh, I see that what you guys are doing is kind of the big, the big future conversation that's going to be happening with a lot of folks that are rethinking these things. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of folks are going to think, you know, this annihilation conditional immortality argument has a lot going for it. It makes sense. You know, it makes sense to me. I think there's other people that are going to think, Oh, I don't know. Uh, I think the ultimate purposes of God loving yeah. purposes will finally succeed. I think I have, you know, universal restoration, but the thing that what I like about you two is that you guys are friends. You're having this conversation with each other. You're sharing it. And it's not doesn't affect your relationship, doesn't affect your ability to like be in church together or be friends. So I, I, so that to me, I find, you know, I find heartening. And it's not even that you're wanting to disfellowship from folks that uh, hold the eternal conscious torment point of view. I think what what I hope we can do is get back to what it was like in the early centuries of the church, as I see it, where there were all three of these views that were kind of you know coexisting. Uh, I think you can see like the eternal conscious torment view going back pretty early to folks like our Tertullian. Um, and I think you can find the annihilation view going back pretty early. I think you can find the, the universal reconciliation going back pretty early. 
So if we just say that, you know, this discussion, this is like, this is just like a good discussion that we can have with each other. It shouldn't affect yeah. us being able to recognize each other as Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could get to there, I think that would be just a really helpful thing. And I think that you guys are are modeling that. And I appreciated that. That's why I sent you in. My email was sort of an attempt to say, you know, good for you. I appreciate <laughs> the way you're having that discussion. And if there's anything I can do to, uh, um, I don't know, encourage you to, you know, keep having the good discussion, I'd like to do that. Well, that means a lot because I know for Josh and I both, we appreciate your, you know, it's, I mean, if you're going to be all about grace, you better be all about grace. Yeah. And the way that you, I know, feel confident in your message, but also hold it in an open hand to try to avoid a dogmatic presentation of that message. Yeah. Wouldn't that be ironic to be It like would a, be interesting. Yeah. And so, because and I say it on the podcast a lot, <laughs> to be a ask jerk questions, about it. ask yeah. questions, because when we confront these things and are, allow ourselves to explore them, my belief is if we are, or if we are submitting ourselves to God and trusting him to be leading us, then he is going to either refine our faith through the questions or reaffirm the faith that we currently have. Yeah. And, and I just think that's really important. And then the other thing that I think was one of the reasons that we even started the podcast was, to, you know, to let's just have open conversation where like this fellowship doesn't have to be on the line. Yeah. You know, let's just let's just create some understanding amongst people to recognize like we don't we, it doesn't have to be the Christianity doesn't have to be a dog eat dog culture. Yeah. Right. I'm 100 percent convinced Christ did not call us to attack everyone at the kneecaps with secondary yeah. and tertiary issues. Yeah. But oftentimes that's what it comes down to. And and I know and I, I think I speak for both of us. We just really appreciate the ability to have this open conversation, wrestle with it, and let the Holy Spirit take each of us on the journey that he has for us and whatever that means. Yeah. I've listened to a lot of podcasts about people talking about universal reconciliation or talking about conditional immortality, but I don't think I know of another podcast where it's um, a Christian universalist dude and an annihilationist (laughs) dude are just talking about it. And friends with each other and Mm -hmm. are talking about a whole bunch of stuff. And you guys are obviously not clones of each other. You, you disagree with each other a little bit. You have fun. You're talking about uh, all of these things. To me, that just seems very, uh, to me, that's like very healthy and, um, you know, and very hopeful. And, and I hope that people continue to, to me, you know, if I was somebody that was rethinking things, I would like your podcast because you guys aren't super dogmatic with each other. It's like, I kind of think it's this way. It's, oh, I'm, you know, I'm more convinced this way. Um, to me, that feels like you're inviting people into like a conversation that, that you guys are, are having and your friends. And th- that's how this whole thing, I think, should feel. Yeah. No, we really appreciate that because that was our goal at the, at the beginning of all this. Now that you didn't convert them, this is probably the last podcast. <laughs> but, um no, I, I we really uh that was that was that was the goal. Like it, it really truly was. Here's the thing. I am I'm still a lay elder in a Baptist church and so I still have to be very cautious on which, you know, I'm not trying to create unnecessary uh fissures <laughs> at my church. Well I'm, I'm currently a free agent, so I don't really know what I'm where I fit now that yeah. now that this uh 
now that the cat's out of the bag and I've put out there that I'm whoever has the largest signing yeah. bonus gets whoever, Josh. Whoever, well, whoever let, I just put in, I don't know if you have any like first Christian churches or Christian church disciples of Christ around. Um, but I was the minister, uh, you know, at a first Christian church. And I, I remember I, I had kind of gradually while I was in ministry had come to this universal reconciliation position. I, I didn't get up in the pulpit and say, guess what, everybody? I'm a Christian universalist. I kept on saying, you know, we're all here because we believe in Jesus. We're following him as our Lord and Savior to the best of our ability and understanding. We all agree that in him is fullness of life and to walk away from him is a path to destruction. Where that destruction leads has been a big big discussion about that in the history of Christianity. Some have thought it ends in eternal conscious torment. Some have thought it ends in um, annihilation or cessation of existence. Some thought there might even be like some kind of universal restoration of all things. But that's a that's a big long discussion that's been going on. We can have that discussion together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't. I wasn't trying to promote my view as the only. Like I wasn't trying to like, drive people out of the church if they didn't yeah. have if they didn't have that view. But uh, just to let people know that they were, you know, that they were welcome to have that view, but that they had, that they had to understand that if they did have that view, they were going to be in church with people who didn't share that view. And that right. we were going to be community together. So this wasn't about somehow isolating ourselves off from people who don't have this right. view. And I don't really want a Christian. I don't want the end of this to be a Christian universalist denomination where the right. only people that can be in that church are the people that are that are down with the Christian universalism thing. I I don't think that I don't think that should be the the, right. Yeah. The, the ultimate goal, and that the only people I'll ever talk to or be friends with are people who are Christian universalists. Yeah. That would be a weird, yeah, outcome. the place to kind of talk and be accepted, which is hard. Which is is hard to find, especially in the South. But it it is a a unique aspect about of who you are as well, because you can yeah. talk and have these different views. Like you see that in many of your conversations on your podcast and. Um, and also we would love to come on your podcast. We would love to, to to hop on, um, and kind of, you know, I guess return the favor, come on, interview, ask us, drill us with questions. Um, maybe by then Marty would be, Oh, stop, stop. I don't appreciate this peer pressure around here. Um, yeah, because, you know, tonight's all about hearing your story, but your listeners have heard your story. Yeah. And so there's listen, I got pages of questions here. I need yeah. I need to push back on somebody that can give me an intelligent answer because this yeah. goober over here can't. <laughs> I get all my information from yeah. David. So I asked, you're you're calling him. <laughs> I, no. I asked Josh a question, all of a sudden I get, well, here's what David says, here's what Brian Zan says, here's what oh my goodness. Uh, well, David Bentley Hart says. Yeah, it's you know what what I'm kind of a in a way I'm a little bit of a middleman. I, I have a doctor, I have a doctor of ministry, a master of divinity, but I I'm not a like a PhD. I'm an expert. Like I've got Greek down a thousand percent. I've got Hebrew down a thousand percent. I can speak Aramaic. You know, I I I'm so I don't I don't try to say I am somehow the world's greatest scholar. I'm sort of like an in between. I have mm-hmm. I, you know I have more education than the than the average layperson, but I'm also not at the highest academic level. And so on my podcast, what I like to do is to have some conversations with people that are at that really high academic level, to have people that are more peer with me that are in ministry, and also just to talk with, you know, just some like people who have never been to seminary or anything, but 
who who have taken an interest in theology and have studied all these things and are very active in their church and are thinking about all these questions. And uh, so I just enjoy those conversations. And so I put them out there and, you know, I've got like 140 podcasts episodes mm-hmm. now. So it's a pretty wide spectrum of I- thoughts and ideas um, about all of this. And what's interesting is that there this this conversation leads so many different directions. You know? yeah. I mean, it, it's just somehow this discussion opens up just this panorama of mm-hmm. things that we can, um, things that we can talk about. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot. There's a and, lot. I, and I do think there's an appetite for that. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that, that when we discussed hell and the theological kind of complexities yeah. of it, that the, the, the views went up. Right. I think there's an yeah. appetite there that is getting tapped into and, um, it's a beautiful thing, but we should probably wrap up for today. Okay. And bring things to a close. Um, but again, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, that was really fun. You did a, you, I mean, um, you exceeded my expectations and your ability to kind of lay it out. And so I anxiously await the feedback that we'll get, because I think that this was kind of the perfect in some ways capstone to our series, because we're just kind of, you know, blue collar theologians. And like you said, you're not in the, the upper echelon, but you're pretty right. well studied on this topic. Mm-hmm and are able to come in and provide some of the additional structure that we couldn't quite put into words to at least hopefully lead Christians to respect the position, not as heretical, but as there's a biblical understanding here. There is a, you know, God loving scripture, loving people who are not trying to manipulate the words of Christ can, can land here. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, Augustine himself, you know, in his in Caridian on faith, hope, and love, he mentions the um, that there are many that do not uh, share his views about that. That they thank God will not forget to show mercy. Not that, and then he says, you know, not that they're going against the Bible. Mm-hmm. They just take some. They take some passages uh, differently, and he disagrees with them. But there's not a sense there that I don't see that he's trying to say that they are not brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't excommunicate them, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, David. We appreciate I appreciate you emailing. Yeah. Uh, you've been a big uh big influence for uh for me personally. So it's kind of a personal, I guess, uh trophy of mine. Fan point fan point out <laughs> here interview. But no, we we, we really take appreciate a selfie you with the computer. <laughs> um, anyway. But no, we, we appreciate you coming on. We appreciate um your you reaching out. We'd love to yeah. have you back on at some point. We'd love to have yeah. a long-lasting relationship we'd love to come on on yours we'd love to keep the conversation rolling if there's yeah. anything outside of christian universalism you'd love to talk about let us know we we're wild. You know, I, I, I do i you know I, I have tried to i don't really get too much into like different atonement theories or mm-hmm. social issues or human sexuality issues mm-hmm. or any of those types of things what what the podcast is just zeroed in Mm-hmm. On the single question, right. is God ultimately about the business of saving us all by grace? That's like the only question that I'm really focused on there. Gotcha. All right. That's a big enough one. That, yeah, yeah, you got, I was gonna you say. got the work cut out for you, that's for sure. You're going to need more than 140 more episodes to flesh that oh, one out. Oh, it's fun. You know, I'm just having a good time with this and getting to have these. I mean, I enjoy. It's funny, you know, like when you go to, when you go to seminary, you become a minister, it's because you enjoy theological conversations and discourse. But the weird thing is, is that once you become a minister, most people don't want to talk about theology with you. 
Yeah. Right. You know, and and so what's been fun now, now that I've retired from the ministry um, part of it, and I'm just now I get to have like honest, like fun, interesting, like theological conversations with mm-hmm. just, you know, other people. And sometimes they're they have PhDs. Sometimes they're they've got some kind of ordination. Sometimes um, they don't. But the conversations are all good. And I, I, en- I enjoy them all. Yeah. Well, we sure enjoyed this one, For sure. and okay. I hope everyone else did. And uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here and stop the recording. Okay. And uh, and just again, thank you so much. And You're welcome, everyone. Yeah. This is the beginning, a beginning of a beautiful relationship. That's right. That is grace right. <laughs> saves all, Mr. David Artman. Everyone, we hope you enjoyed it. Go uh, and then also go uh, buy the book, listen to the podcast. That's right. Um, it's a great read, highly recommended, great listen. Um, and we'll see y'all next time. Thanks for joining us on another episode of TNJ. Don't forget to check out the links to any of our guests in the show description. And check out tattoosandjesus.org for additional show information or to submit your questions, comments, or curse words.